I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or otherwise your attention to the screen in just a moment to Isaiah 2. We're going to be reading together the first five verses. But hopefully you have noticed by sitting here for the last few minutes that this is the first Sunday in a special season we call Advent. It's the first liturgical season in the liturgical year. The liturgical year, the year of celebrating what Jesus Christ has done, doesn't begin on January 1. It begins on the first Sunday of Advent, which this year falls on the 27th day of the month of November. So this is the first Sunday of the new liturgical year when we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, his birth in Bethlehem. So it's time to begin our practice of waiting and anticipation. So we're going to be setting aside our series on discovering God's will together, and we're going to be pushing that off until the first of the year, and we're going to be focusing on Advent and on Christmas under the theme, if you will, of Because of Bethlehem. And this Advent, we're going to be focusing on four Old Testament prophecies in the Advent season, and then on Christmas, we'll focus on the gospel message that, in fact, Jesus Christ is born. So in preparation for that celebration, I'm going to invite you to the book of Isaiah, to the second chapter, to the first five verses. And this is what the prophet Isaiah writes. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. Maybe you know or maybe you remember that song. My sister and I used to sing it bouncing up and down in the back seat of our car. Those were the days where there were no seat belts. And yes, I am that old. We never went anywhere, however, in a horse-drawn sleigh. I'm not that old. And I can't ever remember going through the woods or actually going over any rivers. But the mere memory of hearing that tune recently brought back to mind all of the things that I remember and loved about going to Grandma's house. I remember the fields when they had been freshly plowed. I remembered those same fields when they were now ready for harvest. I remembered those fields when they were blanketed with snow. I remember running up the back steps of the old farmhouse 
and playing in the front unheated porch where the few toys that Grandma had were kept, even in the winter. I remember the best part of going to Grandma's house was, was always the cookie jar, always full of freshly baked cookies and the fresh baked pie, especially if you went there on a weekend on a Saturday. Most of all, I remember how excited she was to see us when we came. It's been over 25 years since I've been to the farm. My grandmother is no longer there. I've often thought about going back. I still have some relatives in that small town, but you know how it is. Life is busy. The timing just never seems right. And now I've put it off for so long. Doesn't seem to make much sense. But the longing to go back home, that nostalgia for the good old days and the opportunities to, to cherish the memories of being with family and with friends and even reliving some of it is never stronger than at Christmas. And I'm left to wonder because, because Christmas is also a great time to wonder. I'm left to wonder why we never get around to doing the things that we say we're going to do. The question is, what are we waiting for? In Isaiah, in this second chapter, in those first five verses, the prophet Isaiah reminds us of that desire, that deep infused desire to go home literally figuratively and perhaps especially spiritually it is deeply lodged in our heart he writes here for us in the third verse many people will come and they will say come let's go to the mountain of the lord let's go to the temple let's go to the house of our god he will teach us his ways and then we'll get to walk in his paths St. Augustine comments on this very passage when he says, God, you arouse humankind to take great joy in praising you. For you made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Isaiah is a very clever writer. He loves to set people up and then wham! deliver an unexpected punchline right when you're not thinking about it. He shares these verses and in them a wonderful vision for the end times with his fellow Israelites. What God follower wouldn't love to see the nations, the people of this world streaming to their doorsteps? What Jewish believer wouldn't love for that doorstep to be the city of Jerusalem? What disciple of Jesus wouldn't just love to see cars lined up down the street waiting to turn into the church and their worship center full of excited worshipers? Imagine the Israelites as they listened to Isaiah's words. They were first spoken to the people of Judah, but they are recorded for us, for us here in this prophecy. You see, Isaiah proclaims, Someday Jerusalem will be the most important city in the entire earth. 
Won't that be amazing? And the Israelites all shout, Amen! We can't wait for the day when those godless pagans will come crawling back on their hands and knees. That will be so amazing. Oh, for the day when Jerusalem will rule the world. And then Isaiah says, Someday the Lord will come and judge the nations and he will teach them his law. When that happens, that will be absolutely amazing. And the Israelites again, they cheer. Amen. Give it to him, God. It's about time they realize who's really in charge around here. Isaiah goes on to proclaim, someday all the nations will stop fighting. War will be ancient history. I mean, between you and me, this just keeps getting better and better. And the Israelites all shout, amen. Not getting beat up anymore. Not being bossed around by these irritating Philistines, not to mention the Canaanites and the Hittites and the, and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all those otherites. We've been dreaming about this possibility forever. And while they're all excited, Isaiah drops his punchline. Isaiah gives them the gut check. He says, come, oh, how of Israel, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me translate that for you. Isaiah says, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You see, in the first chapter, Isaiah has reminded the Israelites that they are a rebellious people. What had been under Solomon's rule, a center of justice. Jerusalem is now a city full of murderers. The orphans and the widows are being ignored. Idolatry is running rampant. And Isaiah reminds them that you were called to be a holy nation. You were called to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What are you waiting for? Isn't it time to get with the program? Isaiah is telling his original listeners and us as well that if we want the nations to come to the light, we have to be the light. If we want the world to embrace the promises of God, we need to embrace the promises of God. If we want the nations to acknowledge the place of God in their life, we need to acknowledge the place of God in our life. If we expect the nations to testify to God's love and grace, we need to testify and acknowledge the love of God's grace in everything. So Isaiah's message from God to his people here is rather simple. The nations will learn God's ways in Zion. It's coming. But since we proclaim to already reside in Zion, the process must begin with us. Or Isaiah saying, to Israel with them. And the question this morning is, <laughs> what were they waiting for? And what are we waiting for? Israel's intention here is to refocus God's people on his coming so that we can be at home with him forever. And now with the benefit of 2,700 years since Isaiah, 
You and I know that God's first coming came in a little town called Bethlehem in obscurity, came in the form of a tiny infant born to peasants. It was celebrated by a few earthly shepherds and it was limited to about a hundred mile radius. But he came and he made his home with us. Emmanuel. God's second coming will see him return in resplendent glory, depending and descending on a cloud to the sound of trumpets, and every eye will see and every knee will shake and bow, and the dead will rise, and the whole world will recognize Jesus is Lord. And then he will take us home, and we'll be with him forever. Isaiah, knowingly or not, in referring to these last days, is focused on coming and going home. This prophetic poem that he writes here in these verses visualizes and verbalizes humanity's shared dream, a time of universal peace and prosperity. This dream is symbolized by a statue that graces the United Nations headquarters in New York City. It's the statue of a man beating his sword into a plow. It is the vision, the picture of a new order. The dream of putting enmity between us, of a father and a son walking hand in hand, of a mother embracing the son she reluctantly gave up for adoption decades before, or of reliving the most cherished moments of our growing up years in our childhood home. Those thoughts and those feelings remain deep in our heart. The dream of shalom, the dream of justice for the oppressed, the dream of wrongs being righted, the dream of nations and people groups living in peace with other nation and people groups, of life, of life as we know it and were created to live into it, seated deep in our soul. Isaiah promises us that dream has just gone from being a long shot to being an inevitable possibility. Isaiah writes, the nations will flow upstream to the Lord. The mountain of the Lord's temple, his house, his home, will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream toward it. You see, Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is actually a really small hill. I have a mound out back of my house that is bigger than Mount Zion. But Isaiah pictures it for us as Mount Everest. He pictures this flowing stream going up this mountain to its peak. <laughs> really, Isaiah? Don't you understand? Water always flows downhill. Water never flows uphill. Where is this that you get this picture? But Isaiah pictures for us the nations flowing streaming to this supersized mountain he calls Zion. So is Isaiah suggesting that God is going to redo the geography of Israel? I don't think so. Is he talking about the fact that God is now going to reverse the pull of gravity? I don't think so. 
I think Isaiah is dreaming of the nations of peoples streaming toward God, of people returning to the place where God lives, of coming home to his home, to his temple, to his city. You see, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem and especially the temple represented that place where God has taken up residence. Israel understands this is God's city. It is his earthly place, his home. In the New Testament, the symbol of God's residence of his home changes. In the New Testament, the residence of God is, if we had a drum roll, good place for it. It's in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if this temple is destroyed, I will build it back up. I will raise it back up in three days. And then the Bible adds a footnote for us. It says, he was speaking about his body, John 2. You see, God's presence dwells fully in his son, Jesus. Jesus is the temple through which you and I have access to the Father. We come to the Father, the scripture says, through the Son, So Isaiah pictures a time when all the nations of this world will stream to Jesus, when the Son of Man will be lifted up and he will draw all people to him, as the scripture says. They will come from everywhere. You see, this this little child laid in a manger in Bethlehem will become the Savior of the world. Paul says, If God resides in the body of Jesus Christ, then the church must also be his temple because we are the body of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians in the third chapter writes, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. A few chapters later, Paul says believers who belong to Jesus Christ are his temple. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, he writes in that sixth chapter, who is in you because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. We are not only to go to the house of the God of Jacob where he will teach us his ways so that we can walk in his paths. We are to be the house of God and go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded and taught us. You see, Isaiah prophesies that peoples and nations will stream toward us. They will flow to us. They will be drawn like a magnet to God's house. Isaiah says, the law will go forth from Zion. In verses three and four of this second chapter, Isaiah says, many peoples will come and they will say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths because the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, if you are following along in your Bible as I read that, you noticed I added a word. I added the word because. The word because is 
not in the NIV, but it is actually in the original Hebrew. But for some reason, they decided to simply leave it out, saying probably wasn't necessary, but I think it is. You see, the law going out from Zion explains why the nations and the peoples are being drawn to the house of the Lord. It's the reason. Today, most people don't view the law of God as very seeker-friendly. In fact, even most Christ followers that I know don't get too excited about, about it anymore or pay any attention if it's read in a worship service. Many will tell you it's outdated, it's legalistic, it's politically incorrect, it's sexist, it's intolerant, it's inflexible. So how is it that Isaiah saw the law of God as the dream of how the world should be? As a glimpse of a new and beautiful world, as the foundation for our future home. You see, when Isaiah dreams of this ideal world that is to come, he sees it as a place of justice. Verse 4 says, He will judge the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. Isaiah envisions a world where the wrongs are set right, where the fighting ceases, where the hungry are fed, where the poor are embraced, where the oppressed and the oppressors get their due, where political corruption doesn't exist. When Isaiah envisions this law going out from Zion, he sees it as a place of peace. He sees a day when nations cease fighting and old rivalries are put aside. He sees it as a world where racism and sexism have disappeared. He pictures a world where revenge and getting even are off the table. He sees what God sees. He pictures a day where homeland security and armed, peace, armed peacekeeping forces and, and boot camps are gone because there's no reason to keep them. They will no longer train for war, he writes. Imagine, imagine if we were to read the Ten Commandments because that's probably the, the most well-known part of the law. The law is in the Old Testament saying the word of God, Okay. That's what the psalmist means. That's what Isaiah is talking about. But imagine if we were to read the Ten Commandments in the future tense. In the future tense. And the truth is, that's how they're written. In the Hebrew, all commands are written in the future tense. They are all written like a parent who is telling their teenage son or their teenage daughter, you will be at home by 11 tonight. Future tense. Imagine the, reading the law as God's picture of a better day. A day when there will be no more killing. When there will be no more false testimony. When there will be no more stealing. When there will be no more coveting what your neighbor has. When there will be no other gods that people turn to. Imagine that day. That's what Isaiah is talking about. That day is coming, he says. God's law was originally designed to spark curiosity among the nations. Oh, yes, it was for the Israelites and God's people to do, but more it was designed to be a aha moment, a witnessing tool, if you will, for the world. It was given to Israel so that when people looked at Israel, they would say, so how did you get so blessed? 
How is it that things are going so amazing for you and, and so miserable for us? It was given a missionary focus. Observe the laws carefully, the Israelites were told. For this is how you show wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all the decrees and say, surely this is a great nation and they are a wise and understanding people. So Isaiah is painting this wonderful picture of what God is going to do. And then, wham, another one of those punchlines. Are you passionate enough, he asks? Are you committed enough to God's dream that you are fully committed to making it a reality in your own life first? Are you willing to do it today? Are you willing to follow God's law as God's preferred future? Do you see God's word as something to be embraced and obeyed? Not something to be embarrassed about or to hide from or to run in the other direction. Will you start refusing to take God's name in vain? To dishonor your parents and those placed in authority over you? To cheat and to pirate and to plagiarize? To covet what God has gifted to others? Are you willing to embrace God's law, God's word, God's will, so that the world might know who God is and start streaming to his home? The Bible is very clear. Salvation is by grace alone in Jesus Christ. It's not because we keep the law. But the giving of his law, of his word, is a part, not a part, but a part of God's grace. Because you see, in his law, in his word, God paints this wonderful picture for us of what he has in mind that we are to step into and begin practicing and that one day will be. It gives us hope. When we begin to live out this wonderful future that God envisions for us in our own personal lives, then we invite the future into the present. And that's what gives us hope. What are we waiting for? Someone in my last church gave me some round to it. I'm not exactly sure what they were trying to tell me, but let me share them with you. This one reads, I'll help someone in need when I get around to it. This one reads, I'll serve the Lord when I get around to it. I'll read the Bible when I get around to it. I'll go to church when I get around to it. I'll share the gospel with someone when I get around to it. I'll start praying when I get around to it. I checked. Amazon sells around to it for $2. But if this is what you've been waiting for, 
before we start stepping out and stepping in to God's will, it's well worth the $2. It's a small price to pay. And apparently, if you have a round to it, you no longer have an excuse or a reason not to do it. Isaiah reminds us that the day is coming, that the day is here. We have been given the round to it. We are now to walk in the light of the Lord. I remember taking my sons to visit their grandparents when they were young. So we would pack a playpen for when they were awake, a porta bed for when they slept, a sassy seat for when they ate, special food for them to eat, toys for them to play with, a swing to calm them when they got upset, and a diaper bag to keep them dry and odor-free. Forget any one of those things? <laughs> and we were in for a long afternoon or day. So we would come prepared. Are we ready for when God comes to take us home? Are we prepared? Jesus says you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. See, the best way to live our, light, our life is in the light, Isaiah says, streaming into his presence, walking up the mountain towards Zion, learning his ways, doing his will, worshiping in his presence. Are we ready? What are we waiting for? Are you ready? What might you be waiting for? The people of Isaiah's day had lost hope and sight of God's vision. So Isaiah comes and he calls and cajoles and commands them to turn their heads and their hearts toward home with the same fervor that James Thurber places in his Get Ready Man from his book, My Life in Hard Times. And he writes, and I quote, dressed like sorrow, and smelling of hard times, he shuffles through the city streets wearing a sandwich board. The end is near, warns the front panel. Jesus is coming soon on the back. And with a raspy voice, the man proclaims, what are you waiting for? So Isaiah hopes that this passage, what he writes, wept wets your appetite for justice, wets your appetite for peace that only God can bring. Isaiah here hopes his words will entice you to abandon counterproductive detours and keep you focused as you stream toward the hill to learn God's preferred future. Isaiah hopes his words will infect within you a missionary zeal for your family, for co-workers, for fellow students, for your neighbors, and for the world. Isaiah hopes the opportunity for unity and reconciliation with God and with others will bring the world to the house of the God of Jacob. Isaiah hopes that you will never forget that one day 
we will all be home because of a small child born in a little city called Bethlehem who came to remind the world that hope is here. What are you waiting for? Let's pray together. Holy God, open unto us light for our darkness, courage for our fear, hope for our despair. God of peace, open us to peace in our turmoil, joy in our sorrow, strength for our weakness. Gracious and generous God, open our hearts to receive all your gifts. Our hope is in you. We actively wait for your coming. Come quickly, Lord. Amen.